Well, it comes to a time in our service of worship to open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 to continue our series, The New Man in Christ, Colossians chapter 3. For those of you who were not with us last time, we're in a series stretching all the way from Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 through chapter 4 verse 1 thinking of these things which describe our newness in Christ. And in these last days, last Sunday and this morning, we're going to discuss the matter of the new husband in Christ from Colossians 3.19. There it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. You remember last time I told you that in that culture in Colossae and in Ephesus as we shall see, the culture of the time looked upon women as things, not people. Women were perceived as the dreg of society, only those for which we needed to order around, to tell them to go there and to do this or that. Not really people, but instruments to be used in the way that men in that society saw fit. The Apostle Paul comes along and says, with regard to Christianity, there's a new day. And what you must do if you are a saved husband, a regenerate man, is to love your wife, to cherish her and to nourish her, and to give self-sacrificing love toward her. Now, that was really something that was foreign to the time. A man would order his wife to do this or that, and frankly, she was obligated to obey in every sense of the word, and he was cowering, towering over her with the idea that everything that he wanted her to do, whether it was capricious or arbitrary, she was to do with no questions asked. It was a very terrible time. In so many ways, it's the reverse of our own society, where women have taken their rights to an ugly extreme. In that society, it was in the reverse. Women were treated very, very unfairly and very poorly. Paul comes along and says, if you want to define yourself as a Christian husband, what you must define yourself as loving your wife, meeting her needs, knowing her, being intimate with her in every sense of that term. Now, last time when we talked about those things, and we did in great detail, and it was very challenging for all of us, myself included, we stopped with this question, how can I love my wife in the way that we've spoken about in a very practical way? The last time we exposited the text, we found the history in the background, we studied it in great detail, but we stopped off with the question, how might I do this very practically in my life today? in the 20th, almost 21st century. How can a book, the Bible, having been written some 2,000 years ago, how can it relate to my life today? What is its relevancy? What does it matter? Can Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really instruct me today? The answer, my friends, is yes, an emphatic yes. And we want to see this morning how that can take place. Very briefly, but very, very powerfully. If you've ever wondered how to practically husbands love your wives, then this morning is that morning for you to listen. 
And in our outline, a very easy and simple one, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the husband as a lover, a lover. Secondly, we're going to talk about the husband as a learner. And then thirdly, probably for next time, the husband as a leader, a leader. A husband as a lover, a learner, and a leader. Very, very simple outline, but very, very profound in its truth. Let's talk first of all about what it means for a husband to be a lover of his wife. I mean, it's not really enough, frankly, for Paul to say, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. We need more. We must have more data, more practical application of this truth if we are going to live this out powerfully for her and for Christ and for our world. In order for us to do that, I want you to return with me as the Scripture reading this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. As you know, Colossians and Ephesians are parallel letters in so many ways. Sometimes even the exact phraseology is being used in both places. But there are passages within either where there is an expansion of a thought. And in Colossians 3.19, there is simply one sentence that says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. But in Ephesians 5, there is an expansion of that thought. In fact, it covers from verses 25 all the way down to verse 33. Now, having read that this morning, I will not belabor the reading of the passage again, but I want you, if you were listening carefully during our Scripture reading time, that Paul the Apostle mentioned this concept of loving your wife three times in this passage. Did you notice it? Verse 25... Husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Verse 33, Each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. Now you ask the question, why would Paul, in a very short, compressed passage like this, mention the same thing repetitively three times? Why is Paul choosing to be redundant? Well, the obvious answer is that in a culture like that, with husbands not characteristically loving their wives, since it's such a new idea for most of them, if not all of them, Paul needs to remind them repeatedly that this is something that God is commanding them to do. With a foreign thought like it was, it might very well have been the case that Paul says, I'm going to tell you something I'm going to tell you something again, and I'm going to re-remind you of it again. Why? Because this is important. Because in the society in which you live, don't treat wives as though they are non-entities, non-people. Don't treat them as though they are machines or slaves or servants to do everything that you would want them to do at your every whim and desire. You men need to lovingly lead them by loving them in this way. Indeed, the the love that he's speaking about here might have been so foreign that Paul gives them a comparison. Because I'm sure, as we might in our own society, have asked themselves this question, what would this love look like? How would it practically flesh itself out in my day-to-day life with my wife? 
And Paul says, I'll tell you exactly how it's to be. Verse 25, love your wives, husbands, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Lest any man ask the question, what does this love for my wife look like? Paul has an immediate answer. Look at Christ's relationship to his bride. And the obvious point is what? Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. For that is the very issue that is before us when we look at Christ's relationship to his church. He gave himself for us. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and I want to show you some very, very quick passages that speak of this self-sacrificing love on the part of Christ to His church. Romans 5. I don't know if you know it or not, but many, many times in the New Testament, far more than we're able to cover this morning for the sake of time, repeatedly the issue of Christ's love for His church is coming through to the forefront. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, notice this, demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Can you see the love that's expressed there? In verse 5, it's the love of God. In verse Six, while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why? Verse 8, because God was demonstrating His own love toward us. The issue is that when you men work toward understanding a love for your wife, it is compared to the very love that Christ has for His church. In fact, so much love that He went all the way to the cross in self-sacrificing death to show you how much He loves you. That's the love that a husband should have for his wife because that's the love that Christ, in a form that husband, had for his bride, the church. You remember over in Romans chapter 8 that it speaks about that same love again and it speaks about it in such a magnanimous way. Romans 8.35 Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That was our plight. But what did Christ do? He loved us. And in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, that's love. That is love. 
And when we come to the place where we practically apply the comparison of that love to our relationship with our wife, what is it to look like? Well, put your name and put your wife's name in this passage. If I were to say it in this way, it would be this. Who will separate me from the love of my wife and my love for her? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate me from loving my wife. Now that, my friends, is practical. That challenges us to look at the love relationship of Christ to His bride and ask ourselves the fundamental question, do I love my, life, my wife in that way? Do I see my relationship to my wife in that same way? Would peril or distress or sword, would height or depth or any created thing, would principalities or powers, would anything in this entire universe separate me from the opportunity and the privilege and the obligation to love my wife like Christ loved His bride. Remember Paul saying in Galatians 2.20 that Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. Or how about John 3.16? You know it well. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His only Son, so that we might be given everlasting life. Boy, when, when Paul wants to use a comparison in Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3, you can't think of a better one. This is a love which is transcendent of culture. It's a love that's transcendent of suffering. It is a love that is transcendent of disappointment. It is a love that is transcendent of anything else that we can know. But how is it true that if this is so, and if this is what we are commanded to do, that our love seems so fleeting. It seems so disingenuous. It seems so easy to point out a wrong. It seems so easy to take an offense. It seems so easy for that love to be displaced by hatred. Well, we've got a long way to go, men. Remember, in the first part of Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us of this kind of love toward each other. Therefore, be imitators of God, Paul says, as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Boy, that's just beautiful language, isn't it? That when we love each other, it pictures the love of Christ to His church and the love of Christ to His church was a fragrant aroma acceptable and well-pleasing in the sight of God. Which then, in the reverse, should also be true. That I should love my bride to such an extent that when God smells the life of my obedience, it is a sweet aroma in His nostrils. That's well, a challenge, isn't it? That's a challenge because our culture mitigates everything against that kind of love. Because it's everything for me now. How I can satisfy, satisfy my own desires now. What's in it for me? And we're going to have to fight against that culture. We're going to have to fight against our own life. We're going to have to fight against our own desires. And you know, when Paul comes along and he tries to, to give us a comparison of Christ's love to the church... 
I'm sure that some of them are saying, well, I can't relate, Paul. I, I can't relate to that because, number one, I'm not perfect like Christ was perfect. And number two, I really cannot understand the full depth of that love. I, I really can't grasp it. So Paul says, well, I'll tell you what. Not only am I going to give you the comparison of Christ's love for His bride, I'm going to give you another comparison, and that is your own love for yourself. Let's see if this one fits. Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 26. He gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, that is the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Then verse 28, So husbands ought also, very important, just in that same way, he's saying, you husbands ought also to love your own wife as your own body. And then notice this incredible statement, he who loves his own wife loves himself. You say, what, what, what is he saying there? What does he mean? Well, it's very simple. Paul knows that as sinful human beings, there is a person for whom we have the greatest amount of love, ourself, ourself. Everything that we do, everything that we are is designed for the fulfillment of my love for myself. That's how sinful and selfish we are. Everything I do, everything that is about me is a, is a planned and strategized and structured attempt for me to receive the greatest affirmation, the greatest esteem, the greatest love. And so, if you were to compare the love that I want you to have for your wife, Paul says, I just want you to look at the love you already have for yourself. If you're, if you're not convinced about the love of Christ for His church, how about being convinced when you look in your own heart, in your heart of hearts, when you see the great love you have for yourself? And whatever love is there, and whatever affirmation, whatever desire for personal fulfillment and the esteem of yourself... He says, divert that right away from yourself to your wife. And guess what? When you do that to her, because I'm sure someone's going to say, well, what's in it for, for me then as a husband if my wife is always the one that I'm diverting my love to? Guess what? At the same time, she's diverting her love to you. And that's the beautiful balance. You say, now, wait a minute. I'm not sure I agree with the theology of this. You, you, you mean to say that Paul is saying by comparison that there is this self-love here? Yes. Why? Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Well, what an incredible statement. I mean, I've met some people who say, I hate myself. I loathe myself. I absolutely detest myself. You know what is true? The opposite of such a statement. When someone says, I loathe myself, I hate myself, what they're really saying is, I am desperate for you and others to tell me that's not true. Oh, you're not such a bad guy. You're not such a bad gal. Come on, don't, don't do that to yourself. Don't catch yourself up short. Don't sell yourself short. You are really a nice person. And Paul says, wait a minute. No one ever hated his own flesh. You say, well, that's just talking about your physical body. No, this term for Paul is used to talk about your life. 
There are times when he talks about flesh as the physical body, but this isn't one of them. He's saying no one ever hated himself. Well, what do they do to their, their own lives? But nourish and cherishes it, your life. Wow. You mean to say that our life is bent around the fulfillment of nourishing and cherishing ourselves? Yes. Yes. The sad, tragic reality of the curse of Adam is that we are all about the business of loving ourselves. You know, we're masters at that. I'm a, I'm a master at loving myself. Tremendous professional. Well, I could just take it to new heights. Just thinking all the time about myself and what, what is this going to do for me and how is this going to turn out for my benefit? Well, I tell you, we, we, can, we can do all kinds of mental gymnastics to turn things around to make sure that we are affirming ourselves. And Paul says, listen, if you want to know what it means to love your wife, just look at how you love yourself. That's the golden rule, isn't it? You want someone to treat you in such a way that you want to be treated. The two great commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, since you already love yourself, just look at that love then and divert that love away from yourself to your neighbor. You know what that's called? That's called dying to self. Dying to self. Daily, I die to myself because it means the fulfillment of my love desire for my wife, for other people. J. Adams says, what is love? Paul shows us here what it is. Love is giving, giving of oneself to another. It is not getting, as the world says today. It is not feeling and desire. It is not something over which one has no control. It is something that we do for another. No one loves in the abstract. Love is an attitude that issues forth in something that actually, tangibly happens. Love is not first a feeling, but rather a giving of oneself to another. And this, this challenges and convicts me to no end. This shows me that not only should I be willing to die for my wife, because, you know, a lot of people would say that. Well, listen, if I'm going to take, if I'm going to take a bullet for my wife, I'd do it. I'd do it. I'd stand in front of that robber and I'd take that bullet because of my love for my, for my wife. Well, that may be true. But long before the possibility of dying for your wife, are you living for her? Are you living for her? Are you dying daily to your own desires, uh, to your own selfish pride, to your own love and mastery of your own needs toward loving your wife? Well, this is tremendous. And you know the word nourish there? It says nourish and cares for ourself. It means to feed, to bring up to maturity. Oh, I can just see all kinds of things in my heart and mind with that. Boy, I just, I work toward nourishing my body. I work toward nourishing my mind. I work toward feeding myself. I, I work toward bringing myself to a place where my needs and desires are preeminent. And the word cherish there, literally, to keep warm. To keep warm. To cherish with tender love, to show affection. And Paul is saying, look, this is what you're already doing to yourself. Just transfer that and the comparison that I'm giving you to, the, to a nourishing and a cherishing of your wife instead. Keep her warm. Cherish her with tender affection. Love her. Model what the Lord Jesus Christ did because He gave everything He had to His bride. He had a lifelong obedience. He had an unending feeding and nourishing love. He had a warm and affectionate cherishing love that ultimately led to His very death. 
And sadly, folks, in our day, these thoughts are light years away from where we live, right? I mean, you turn, you turn on the television, you, you read a book and a magazine, you have conversations with other people, and boy, I, 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 I continues in the conversation, even among Christian people. Many, many millennia ago, Sebastian Artemides said this, really a commentary on our culture today. There is many a pug who is convinced he would not be a real man if once in many weeks he spoke a kind word to his wife. He stalks about the house and sits at table like one who is mute, speaking to his wife only when he decides to rattle her ears and sink her heart by reprimanding in whatever she has said or done, even when her actions are well-intentioned and blameless. Such monsters should have become monks and hermits rather than husbands, for they are far more at home in the forest with wild animals than in a house at the side of a rational wife. Now that... That is so true. I mean, we live that way at times, don't we? You know, we say, oh man, it's been a hard day at the office and I'm tired of talking. And I go home and my wife may not have talked to another adult at all, all day. At least in my house, that's the case. And we go home and they say, honey, how was your day? Tell me about what was going on. Let me tell you about my day. And all of a sudden, there's this, there's this extended conversation. And we're like that blob over in the corner. We don't want to hear it. We just don't want to talk. And, and we're just sort of practical mutes. And we need to realize that that's not love. That's not love. And in case, Paul, I'm sure, is thinking, in case someone didn't hear my message the first two times, he says in Ephesians 5.33, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. You know, he goes from the general to the particular. I want every individual to hear this. And what kind of love is it? It's a free love. It's a free love with no conditions. It's a volitional love. It's an unending love. It's an unselfish love. It's a purposeful love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a manifested love. It, It issues forth in actions. You know, it's really like 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not seek out a wrong suffered. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong. It does does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It is the greatest. You know, this this is a challenge to be a lover as a husband. Hey, listen, anybody could love in the physical sense. Anybody could crank it out mechanically. But when you love from the heart, when you love with a purposeful love, a a, a choice of your will, that's hard. But you know what? Apostle John says in 1 John that his commandments are not burdensome. We can do it. We can do it. God calls us to do it. And we will do it if we walk in the power of the Spirit of God. You know, it's not enough just to be a lover. Secondly, we must be a learner. Look at 1 Peter 3.7. 1 Peter 3.7. It's really so quick. 1 Peter 3.7. Boy, what a great text. 
Peter wants to get his two cents in, not just Paul. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a joint heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we ought to be willing to die for our wife if need be, and we also ought to be willing to live for her, die to ourselves. Peter says that there are two in his category as well. One, know your wife intimately. And two, show her honor, show her respect. One, know your wife intimately. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, normally someone might assume that that means, well, just cohabitate with your wife. Live as husband and wife. But it's really much more broad than that. It's really talking about living with your wife based on an intimate knowledge of who she is. Living with an intimacy not only of who she is, but who you are in light of her. And living with a knowledge of the Word of God so that when you combine all three of those things, you're loving your wife. You're learning about her. You're you're giving her charity and courtesy and love and respect and honor. You're learning all of these things about her that she wants you to know. You say, well, what are those things? What practical knowledge might that entail? Here are a few. Find out her needs and then work to meet them. Find out how she wants to be spoken to, and then when you find that out, then by all means, speak. Find out how she wants to be protected. Since she is a weaker vessel, find out how you can protect her and cover her from distress and harm. Find out about her frustrations and then help her overcome them. Find out what she really does and does not enjoy, what she really likes and dislikes, and minister to her in that way. Share your life with her, your joys, your sorrows, and then find out about hers so that she may share her life with you. It's not that difficult. Treat her with kindness and courtesy. Praise her for all the good that she does, not always pointing out all of her faults. In fact, we should do it this way, men. We should look at our sins with a microscope and look at her sins with a telescope. Isn't that what the Bible speaks about when it talks about love covering a multitude of sins? Isn't it what it's talking about when it says that we should take the log out of our own eye first before we are to look at the sins of others? Treat her as a costly jewel, not as a garbage can. I think in our society, even unfortunately, tragically in the church, many ladies are being treated like a garbage can where all the stuff is dumped inside and it's all mixed together and it's foul. And yet, the Bible says, treat her as a costly jewel. You say, why? Because the Bible says she's a weaker vessel. You say, what does that mean? Is that denigrating to women? Oh, not at all. Not at all. It's actually, it's actually a truth about both of us because it's a comparative term. We are weak. She is weaker. We're all weak. We're all in need of repair. Believe me. We all have sinful hearts. What we need is men to learn about their wives in such an intimate, understandable, biblical way that we are caring for them because, yes, they are physically weaker, but even more than that, the word that's used here, she is a woman, treat her as a weaker vessel since she is a woman, it means, literally, she is womanly. That means she's feminine. 
That means that she is delicate. That means that there's a pristine nature about her that we want to uncover. We want to help her. We want to treat her as though she is a feminine, gentle flower. You say, that's trite phraseology. No, it isn't. We, in our culture, want to force women to be masculine, mainly because men don't lead as they should. And we want men, because of the problems that that creates, to be more feminine. And we have the thing totally reversed. Men, we are going to learn to lead. We're going to come back next time and learn what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, act like a man. Act like a man. Boy, I wish I had about 70,000 guys in a Colosseum setting and I was able to exposit 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Men, we need to act like a man. That means be masculine, be courageous. And ladies, you need to stop acting like a man if you're doing so. You need to be feminine. You say, what does that mean? That means submit, that means respect, that means honor, that means love, that means allow others to lead even if they're leading in a very faltering way. It means to take both the inside of your heart and the outside of your appearance and make it as womanly as you possibly can. Read your own Old Testament and find out how many times it said of the old women of old how that they were both beautiful on the inside and the outside. I think there's a connection there. The more feminine you are, the more godly you are. The more godly you are, the more feminine you are. And men, this word to us tells us, 1 Peter 3, 7, you must honor her. You must respect her. A word for our day. What's the ultimate result? The latter part of verse 7 says it this way, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, that's an incredible statement about both the vertical and the horizontal relationship. That which makes a man in his relationship with God right and righteous and that which makes him in his relationship with others, especially his wife, right and righteous. And the reverse is also true. Men, if you are not right with your wife, if you are not loving her, if you're not learning about her in the way that Peter speaks of here, you do not have a right relationship with God. You do not. That's what it says. So that your prayers may not be hindered. You say, what does hindered mean? It was a military metaphor. It was talking about someone putting obstacles in a roadway. Now that's graphic. Do not do anything that puts an obstacle in your roadway between you and God. And you will do so if you do not love your wife in this way. You're going to put an obstacle even in your own prayer life. Your prayers will not ascend past the roof. They will not go to the throne room of God. You're a lover, men, when you learn how to both live and die for your wife. And you're a learner when you know your wife intimately and when you show her the honor she deserves. As I end this morning, I uncovered a a wonderful statement by Jay Adams in his book, Christian Living in the Home. It really sums up everything we've talked about this morning. He says, Husbands, you must exemplify his headship over the church. That relationship ought to be perfect, but we all know that it is far from perfect. But the headship of Jesus Christ, in contrast to the faulty obedience of His church to Him, is perfect. It is always proper and right. It is always wise. It always embodies all that God has commanded. And you, husbands, must exemplify this. That is the task that God has laid on your shoulders. 
Now that in and of itself would be a daunting task, wouldn't it? And he adds this, it is plainly too much. The task is too great for sinful, weak human beings. You know that you cannot fulfill this commandment. It is only as the Spirit of God works in your life that you can begin to approximate the Lord's loving leadership over His church. Yet you must aspire to nothing less in your relationship to your wife. You must emulate Him in all your ways. To be like Jesus Christ in relation to to your wife is an enormous order to fill. You are to be the head of your home, including your wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. When you fail, you not only fail your wife, you also fail to represent your Lord's love for His church. That is why your task is a solemn one. When you fail to reflect Him in your marriage, you damage His name. You are called to show forth Jesus Christ by the leadership that you exercise in your home. If you are going to emulate the love of Jesus Christ for His church, it is up to you to initiate love. You cannot plead, I can't love her because she doesn't love me. Jesus loved us when we had no love for Him. You are the head of your home. If there is little or no love in that home, it is your fault. God holds you responsible to introduce love. You must do that by giving. You must give your time, your interest, your money, yourself. Plan now to do something specific, concrete for your wife each day this week. Get started now. And I say that's the great place to end. Let's start now, men. Let's pray together. Father, the challenge to my own heart is enormous. As Paul said, who is adequate for these things? But your sufficiency has made us adequate. So many ways we have churned out books and tapes and seminars and booklets and magazine articles, all telling us how we can do it. The real issue is, are we going to do it? Those practical steps will come in time if our heart is right with you and with her. Father, I confess that I have not loved my wife as... Your Son, Christ, has loved the church. And I collectively bring our men and their sins to You, Father, even now, collectively confessing on their behalf that we have not loved our wives as You have commanded us to do. And for that we repent. We seek Your forgiveness. And we bask in the glow of the mighty Spirit of God who will blow afresh on us to reinvigorate us to love in this way, to show forth the love of Christ for His bride. Father, as we confess and forsake, may You change us from the inside out. And may we show forth this kind of love that speaks of our love for Christ, that speaks to a dying world who needs Christ that a man can truly love a woman in this way and that a woman can submit to a man in this way. That is what our world desperately needs. And in the end, it will give you great glory, great honor, for which you've planned this very picture of the relationship of a husband to a wife. May we live it in abundance and show ourselves ultimately worthy 
of being called a husband. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you stand together, I want you to know that we have a prayer room that's out through those double doors. You make a left and it's on your right. It has A-S-K on the door, ask, seek, and knock. And we want you to know that, men, if there are any of you who are struggling in your relationship with your wife, there will be elders there who will be ready to greet you, to pray with you, to help you in any way, to give you some practical steps on how to do that. As Todd comes this morning to end our time with a song, be thinking, men, of how you might respond to this message in a very practical way. It's not hard for us to do it if we really think about the love that Christ had for His bride. Melt our hearts, Lord, to these truths.